This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and evidence for progress in the sector. With your host, Studiosity's founder and president of Friends of Libraries Australia, Jack Goodman. Welcome, Stephen. It is uh, lovely to see you today, and you look Thank really you, Jack. well. <laughs> I'm fine. <Yeah. laughs> good, good. Look, um, we like to start these these interviews off by by just um, giving our audience a little bit of an opportunity to get to know uh, know people a little bit better. And I wonder if you could tell us a little about yourself. It's easy to look up some of the highlights in your career, but um, having been a, a British academic and then coming to Australia, but fill out some of the details for us because uh, it's hard to dig much deeper. Sure. Um, well, I um, studied law at uh, university, practiced as a lawyer, but always wanted to be an academic, really. Did a PhD fairly early in the piece. And so practiced and studied until my early 30s and then came to Australia um, in the late 80s and effectively became a full-time academic. Um, I don't know whether I rose up through the ranks, but I moved uh, through ranks, uh, became a dean, a deputy vice-chancellor, a vice-chancellor. Then I retired from that, became lead education partner for KPMG, ended up in a global role for them, and then had another go at retiring. Um, but I've ended up taking out a practicing certificate as a lawyer again to help my daughter in a law firm. And I'm doing bits of consulting that please me and bits of speaking and writing. That is a remarkable journey. And it sounds like a perfectly straight line. I'm, I'm sure that it wasn't. But, uh, but maybe, you know, one thing that uh, I'm sure folks will be curious about, certainly I am, is what drew you to Australia? And, and after growing up and, and studying your undergraduate degree and, and becoming a lawyer in uh, in the UK? Well, there was a bit of push and pull. I should say that I spent some time uh, of, in my childhood in Australia. So my parents emigrated here uh, and then went back again. So, But it was always a, an imaginable thing to do to come to Australia. Um, so there was a pull factor from Australia and the push factor was called Margaret Thatcher, really. And, um, I decided that Thatcher's Britain was not an hospitable place for me and it was time to move and, and it's all worked out really well. I still go back to the UK. I've, I've actually got a cottage there in Northumberland and so I'm dividing my time, but I'm based in Australia. Well, that sounds like the best of uh, <laughs> best of both worlds. Um, I wonder, just digging in a little bit more into that from that that perspective. You know, you, you did a PhD in Australia. Is that at Newcastle? Is that correct? No, no. So I did my PhD while still in the UK, oh, right. and that was down in Cardiff, University of Wales. Right. And I was teaching as well and doing some legal practice as well. Well, you've got it. You certainly got an interesting perspective in having 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 studied in the UK and then built your academic career in Australia. And and I and I wonder um, if you could just comment a little bit on 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 what you see as the strengths and weaknesses, or or what we could learn perhaps in Australia from the UK and and vice versa. Okay. Well, I mean, Australia's got a really good higher education system. And everyone can learn something from someone else, but I, you know, I wouldn't say there was any particular things that that Australia 
could learn from the UK, maybe some detailed things. And I think it's different here. Um, the UK still sees undergraduate study as that deep, immersive, effectively full-time rite of passage. And although that is a part of Australian higher education, it's by no means the only part on the Many young people and not so young people taking longer over their degrees, working a lot, fitting it into their lifestyles. So, so the UK is still that kind of older model of, as it, you know, the, the immersive rite of passage, and I, I think that's passing or is diminished um, in Australia. Um, I think Australia punches above its weight in, in many respects, certainly in terms of world rankings, in terms of research output. I suspect the student experience is thinner here, but then many students don't want to engage with their universities in the way that perhaps in the US and the UK they, they might want to do. So I think sort of pluses and minuses. Um, the, Australia's got quite a lot of good choice as well. There are different kinds of institutions. It's not very diverse, but it's not wholly uniform either. So I, I think so a young person wanting to study for a degree in Australia is well-placed to choose. Hey, we'll come back to that whole question of the student experience. I want to dig into that a little more. But but before we do, I'd just like to understand a little bit more about your you know, evolution as a as an educator and if there were specific opportunities that uh, you took advantage of that were um, you know, fundamental to your development as a, as a, as a student and obviously becoming a, a lawyer, but then pursuing a, um, an academic career. Well, I think one of, one of the things that I was fortunate to have was I did have some inspirational teachers, people that could give a really good set piece lecture. And I ended up wanting to give good set piece lectures. I know this sounds very old school, but I th I think an effective an effective part of higher education is a performative part. And so I used to spend hours and hours preparing for my my lectures and um and the attendance was good and this was you know this was after taping Initially, uh, audio cassettes of lectures started, um, and, and my colleagues might have complained that attendance was going down, but attendance stayed high with mine. So I, I think that sort of performative aspect helps people remember, helps people engage with the subject matter. And I know I'm speaking to someone that um, is an expert in doing things online, and um I'm sure good performative lectures can happen online, but it's the performance aspect, which I think is an important part. It's not, it shouldn't, shouldn't be everything, um, but I think it's part of it. And were there some specific professors who just amazed you with their ability to, you know, expound for an hour on a topic and yeah, carry, yeah. A, carry a theme? Yeah. Um, now, some of it was, you know, impressive because it was no or little notes. And, to show how long ago it was, one of them, you know, was smoking Galois cigarettes throughout the whole lecture, you know, no possibility of that happening uh, now. So some of it was showmanship, but a lot of it was mastery of the detail and an ability to put it into, into a structure and communicate it in a way that 
not only did you keep listening, but you kept thinking about it and processing it and lodging it in different parts of the brain. So it wasn't about just going in one ear and coming out another hand without interrupting the brain in any way. No, it was, you know, they got you to engage in thought about it all. I had some really bad ones as well. Um, I remember uh, in real property law, wondering how on earth we were going to get up to date because the the year was nearly over and we were still in the 1900s and and I thought, gosh, you know, how are we going to learn any modern real property? And in the last lecture, he said, everything I taught you was repealed in 1925. And since then, the law has been in error. And so I'm not going to teach it. Um, so, you know, the, <laughs> the vanity and arrogance involved in that, you know, was was staggering. You couldn't get away with that either these days. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, how would you describe the student experience? So, sorry, tell us, remind us where you studied. Yeah, so I went to Newcastle upon Tyne, which is a right. red brick, um, very hard to get into, sought after university now, and probably was then. And I, sh I should say that I, I am not a role model as a student. I, I engaged in student life deeply. I played music. I acted. Um, in amateur theatre, I crammed uh, for exams. I left it until the last possible safe moment to really study hard. So I did everything that subsequently I advised students not not to do. Um, and I should also add that in those days, but only just in those days, almost everything was assessed at the end of the year in an exam. It was a closed book exam. You really had to learn it. You had to swat it and get it sorted out in your mind. And although educational theory would say that that is the worst thing, worst experience you could have, it encourages surface learning and so on. Well, the only thing is that here I am still remembering things that I learned in the 1970s. So I kind of wonder whether we've got it all right here and whether rote learning and so on might not have some function in in pedagogy anyway i uh, i did well at university by leaving things late cramming remembering it all <laughs> and having a good time oh i'm sure you're not the only one who did that um and and i and i certainly understand that perspective i i think i i can recall a few all night sessions that I would have had yeah. as well. And, and, and it is surprising some of the things you remember, but there is that feeling when you have done that, that you sort of, after the exam, that you let it all go. And, and yeah. a lot of it does feel like it might evaporate, but as you're, as you say, I think some it, of it does get burnt yeah. in. I mean, on that, it, 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 yes, it certainly felt that way, but you know, I wasn't necessarily right. Um, it, it probably had lodged or a lot of it had lodged. And I compare that with preparing for an assignment, only half thinking and pasting lots of text in, or going into an open book exam and just grabbing material, uh, I'm not sure how much of that really involves deep learning either. So maybe the message is there are different learning styles, different people learn in different ways. There are different assessment schemes that suit different people differently. And maybe one size just could never fit all. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. It's a fair point. I'd like to switch gears a little bit, Stephen. Um, and I'm just curious. I mean, very interesting that you 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 know practiced law in the UK and then you ended up coming back to Australia. Um, how would you say 
your experience and your training as a lawyer prepared you for working in the academy or didn't it? What were, you know, what were the benefits uh, of that background? I mean, I think, I think it does in, in many ways. I'm not saying that it's the only kind of training that can benefit you, but, you know, it does encourage critical thinking, getting to the heart of the matter, uh, anticipating other arguments, seeing how other people are going to see things, if only so that you can prevail over them. But, I, you know, I think there's a lot of core skills there in being a lawyer that that works in many other areas of life. I think it also helped me in management. Um, you know, I could, I, I could see things, you know, they were projects that had beginnings and end and they had to be managed and, and so on. So, so I, as I say, I'm sure there are plenty of other really good trainings, you know, many very successful engineers in life, for example, who aren't in engineering anymore, but, but for me, it, it seemed to work. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. Um, the the skills you would you would need to, to to manage those complicated relationships and the and the sort of consensus driven decision making at, at, at universities was that something that that you were you know really prepared for or comfortable with or did you have to really sort of develop those skills because a lot of lawyering is about taking a position and 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 outmaneuvering, uh, you know, an adversary, uh, depending on, on what you're doing. And it does seem that, uh, a lot of, of academic life is about, about building a consensus and, and bringing people on a journey or letting them feel like they've come to their, their conclusion, but hopefully it's the same as yours. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that, Jack. Um, but then a lot of legal outcomes are settlements, they're compromises. Most disputes never see a courtroom, and so much of what a lawyer does all the time is try and find some common ground, an outcome that both sides can live with, um, or at least a good lawyer, I think, does that. So even the consensus building in other contexts, I think, benefits from some kind of legal training. Um, uh, consensus as well is an interesting thing. That there, was a, there was a great line in... Um, in a submarine movie, of The Crimson Tide, and Gene Hackman was a submarine commander, and there was a big issue as to whether there was a nuclear war going on above water. And he came out with the great line, we're here to protect democracy, not to practice it. And um, so I used that line a bit in management. You know, you have to hear people, but at the end of the day, um, it wasn't a democracy. <laughs> That sounds similar to a phrase I've heard in terms of managing groups of people. And that's what I was going to say about the about, about the, the, the difference between lawyering. And I agree, a huge amount of that is negotiation and 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 um you know, things don't end up in a court the vast majority of times. But um but the consensus building is when you've you've got a group of people around the table and you've got multiple parties, you know, you've got a, a chancellery and you've got all those stakeholders there. It's not just two or three people. Sometimes you might have seven or eight or 10 people around the room or, and, and other stakeholders right across the university. So that would, that would take, you know, another level of, um, of consensus building. And I guess, you know, the, the phrase that similar phrase to what you just described with the Gene Hackman line is that democracy as in you want to give people that sense that they've got a voice, but at the yeah. end of the day, Someone does have to take a decision, presumably. Yeah. Although, although, did you ever find that sometimes universities seem to just 
can continue on without making a decision? Uh, yeah, often. Um, occasionally, it worked out quite well also, but not not always. I mean, going, maybe going back a little bit there, one of the things that I did, particularly as a vice chancellor, was I had a lot of staff forums, forums with students. Um, I had some public meetings um, for, with people outside the university, did a lot of engagement with business and government and so on. And I, I found that, you know, if I could keep on explaining the position and listening to other people's position, then even when they didn't agree with what I ended up deciding, at least they could say, well, you know, we had a discussion. He explained his point of view. He gave us a chance to explain ours and we've all got to move on. So I did find that, you know, continuous communication um, almost always benefited almost always I think that's a that's a that's a very fair way of, of putting it and I'm sure that 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 is one of the reasons you were so successful in in leading the University of, of Canberra um I just want to shift gears again um and for listeners who may not know this but you know you've you've probably been one of the more um public voices and you know certainly as long as I've I've known you and, and been working in and around this sector and, and talking about what you, you think um, is do, being done well and where things can be improved. And I was just looking um, at uh, your CV and noticed that as far long ago as 2005, you wrote an article called Australian Higher Education, Crossroads or Crisis. And I just, I couldn't find that actual article, but I wonder if you remember writing it and what, what you were talking about, uh, you know, 17 years ago. Uh, well, you know, I'm not sure I could um, r recount that particular piece, but I can recount a journey. That, uh, yeah, if you could share maybe what uh, were you thinking that long ago yeah, was okay. the, the potential situation that okay. the sector was facing? Well, I'd say at 15 or 20 years ago, I was starting to get the feeling that this couldn't all last. And in recent years, I've brought it all together you know, into a few pieces and the way I'd put it is that I think the golden age of higher education has passed. It's been a phenomenal period since the Second World War, since the late 1940s, the baby boomer generation. Everything's been going for universities. Governments wanted technological progress, and they knew that universities were essential for that. They wanted equal opportunity in the US, in North America, Europe and, and Australia. And higher education was increasingly seen as an important part of equal opportunity. And then um, international students started to come and these and they became really important parts of the economy. So, you know, there was a lot going for it. It was all tailwind and very little headwind. But I started to get the impression that this couldn't possibly last. And one reason is that, you know, it was quite expensive, higher education. Um, and there were increasing demands for that money from other sources with an aging population. So whether it's social welfare, school education, defense, whatever, uh, you know, I didn't think that higher education could keep on claiming the, the slice of the pie that it was receiving. Um, and I, I, I'm now quite, quite sure that it is plateaued. I don't know if it's peaked. I don't know if it'll go down, but I don't think it'll go up anymore. And I think the going gets tougher uh, from now on. 
for reasons which we can go into yeah. to do with and, and this is yeah this is interesting because you sort of coming to that conclusion 20 years ago and the last 20 years really um you know revenues for universities have continued to on their upward trajectory a lot of that has been certainly in australia international students um who've been but that's which has really benefited you know a relatively small number of east coast um you know high profile and group of eight universities for the most part but but all, all universities have had some of that rising tide that has really continued um but you, you you're sensing now that that's that, that that's come to an end or is coming to an end yeah and and that on that rising tide uh a lot of the revenue growth was also from domestic students via the the loan scheme hex or hex help um so universities have enjoyed rising revenue but it has come from the student and and this this is part of my argument that that people have run out of capacity and appetite to pay any more they may or may not be willing to pay the current amounts but i don't think governments or students are willing to pay increases and there's a very interesting theory about some kinds of service providers yeah, this is the Baumol's cost disease yeah. that, uh, that that you really t- tell t- yeah. tell us about that and okay. walk us through that again. In, in, in a nutshell, uh, Baumol and a colleague many decades ago observed that there are some sectors that have to pay increasing wages and salaries in order to attract the talent that they need and to stop it from going into other sectors. But those other sectors can improve their productivity. Whereas the ones we're talking about find it really hard. So education finds it hard to improve productivity. You know, it can increase class sizes, but only to a certain uh, degree. Uh, And prior to technology, which we come to, you know, there was no other way of really scaling up. And that wasn't a problem for education for so long as people were prepared to pay. So if if a government's keep prepared to keep on paying rising costs in universities, then that's all fine. But as soon as they stop being willing to pay rising costs, then the university or the education provider has to think about, well, crikey, how can I improve my productivity in order to keep on paying the salaries that will attract talent? And effectively, they run out of headroom for that until technology has come along. And I suspect then we're at this point where sectors, the sector's got to decide, is it going to adopt a new operating model, try and operate in new ways that gets its costs down? Is it going to use technology to the maximum? Uh, because if it isn't, then it's going to need a very strong brand to keep on attracting people that will pay rising prices. It's not the only sector. Legal services has faced this Um and uh, Beaumont, my final point uh, on the Beaumont thing is he used the string quartet as the example, that in order to attract musicians, you've got to pay salaries that will compete with other places that musicians could go to. But if uh, you can't speed up a string quartet, you can't have fewer than four musicians. So your productivity gains are are limited and you have to depend on people wanting to pay higher prices. That's the same with education. That's the theory in in what what's possibly wasn't a nutshell after all. I, I would I think it's a really interesting theory. I, I would just maybe push back a little tiny bit in saying that um 
most university professors aren't actually as, you know, performing in the same way that, that a, you know, a violinist in a, in, a, in a string quartet is performing. And in fact, we've always had the capacity to scale up, haven't we? I mean, lecture halls are pretty big and microphones work pretty well. Um, what is it that's really causing prices to go up? Because education, you know, even expensive universities or private universities weren't that expensive after World War II. Is it the is it all the research? Is it the is it the the expensive labs and and the the sort of the the, the research part of the university mission that's made them uneconomic? Um, I think research is certainly part of it, Jack. I mean, basically, research is a loss making activity. It may well be good for mankind. It may be good for the brand, but it costs more than it brings in. So that's definitely a, a factor. But salaries are still sixty to seventy percent of of the outgoings of a typical university, possibly more. And in order to attract and retain the talent, administrative as well as academic talent, uh, then they have to pay, they have to pay more. And I I should also say that universities have not really been very innovative in new ways of managing themselves. Uh, for all kinds of reasons, and you know, the, like this whole business of faculties with its faculty board and numerous subcommittees and and so on, and everyone complains that they're all so busy, but they're also busy doing things that aren't always value adding. So I think there's been a bit a leadership failure, a failure of imagination uh, in terms of how they organise themselves. But scaling up, Jack, yeah, you can have you can use up the final seats of a lecture theatre uh, and so on. But until online came along as a possibility, um, I, I think there were limits. There were limits to it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that for sure. Um, but it's not like not like digital delivery only was you know invented in 2020. It's been going on, you know, in an incrementally improving manner for the last 25 years now everybody yep. had that 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 epiphany of well thank goodness it's here because we can't teach on march 15th 2020 yep. Yep. um you know what what are your thoughts about the current state of the sector's embrace of technology and you know if they, are they doing enough does it do they need to do more and if so like what should that look like well it's it has been messy I think there was a lot of cultural resistance to uh, digital distance learning and necessity has come along and has been the mother of invention uh, there. And I think there's still a lot of catching up uh, to be done. Um, and also students, you know, they don't all see things the same way that uh, as you might have seen in the student experience survey, you know, universities got a real pasting from students during the pandemic. They didn't like the experience. And so and so you get to the stage where the students actually avail themselves of online learning, but they say they don't like it and they want more on campus. But then when more on campus comes possible, they don't necessarily turn up to it. So it's all in flux, I think. Um, as I said at a conference yesterday, I actually think that the big technology down the track is possibly the metaverse. It's the headset, it's the 3D, it's the immersive interoperable presence. Now, once you start getting that, 
so 3D virtual reality, uh, then I think a lot becomes possible. I mean, it's going to be huge investment and so on, but the, the, the ability to really feel that you're part of an experiment rather than just observing it happening, I, I think is going to be huge. Uh, it's not my area in particular, but there is so much money going into the metaverse idea from Fortnite, from Facebook, and, and so on. Something's going to happen here. Well, that's for sure. I would agree with that. But I would also ask, you know, what what's happening right now? Uh, there's a there's a huge disparity between, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly in online delivery in the two D non metaverse. Yep. You know. Um, staring at a screen or on a phone, uh, using your headphones, um, interacting with individuals in real time in groups, one-on-one. -on -one. There's a lot, there's a huge amount that can be done. It's not necessarily all being done. I wonder you know, if you could think about that and maybe put it in the context of if, if you were back in the chair right now, or even in a, some other position where you could influence multiple universities, well, if you could change something for students at Australia's universities, like what, what would it be? Well, actually, I, uh, whether or not technology is part of it, uh, the one thing that I really rated about a more traditional education was that every student at the university I attended had a personal tutor assigned to them. They might never teach them at any stage in the degree, but it was one member of staff who was there. You were on their list. They had to look out for you. And uh, Australia's never really had this. Uh, tradition, but I I think the the missing ingredient or one of the missing ingredients at the moment is students don't necessarily feel there's a single person there who really cares what happens to them if they get into trouble where do they go to um, so you know we in the sort of I suppose semi business world have been used to the idea of B to C business to customer B to B business to business. But I suspect the future is about B to me, and it is about feeling that you matter as a person, and that applies in teaching, that applies in your capacity as a student in a, in a university. And I think a, a lot needs to be done to make students feel special. Um, one more point on this. The nirvana, I think, in online or scaled-up technological learning is to personalize learning. The, the provider that can do personalized learning at scale is the one that's going to win out. Using analytics, getting to know each individual student's learning style, pace, and then delivering up the syllabus in a way that suits that student. That, that's, that's what's going to make a difference. Well, I, I think that's a really interesting point in dealing with the, the Baumol's cost disease conundrum to the extent that it really is an issue. And I'm 100 percent sure you're right. Um, and, you know, we're not going to go and get university academics to take pay cuts at this point. That's certainly not going to happen. Um, but personalizing at scale is certainly, you know, I mean, what you just described of having a, having a tutor at, at your uni who's uh, responsible for you, whether they're, you know, in you know, regular contact or not. I mean, that's just, could you even imagine that being scalable in a face-to-face -face environment with 40,000 students at an average Australian university? How, how would you do that if you'd wanted to do that at, at, at UC? Yeah. No, I, I, I couldn't imagine that form of it. 
happening. But I can imagine uh, sophisticated learning analytics with all kinds of warning bells that go off and a student feeling that the university is staying in touch with them, not in a heavy-handed way, but in a supportive way. So I actually, I think technology uh, can come to the rescue here and deal with deal with these issues at scale. You know, it does take a student wanting to be part of it and, and so on. But I have seen so many students go back onto the rails by just a supportive remark uh, yeah. you know, by the teacher that says, well, I don't know why you think you're no good at this because you seem pretty good to me. Just like yeah. one comment can yeah, change a student's difference. mood and motivation. And You know, where is the source of these comments going to be coming from? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about academic integrity. And um, one of the leading thinkers of and researchers in academic integrity in Australia was uh, Professor Tracy Bretag, who mm. may know her her work. And, and she identified one of the three main factors in students' propensity to cheat is feeling like they were in a teaching and learning environment that was unsupportive and that there were lots of opportunities to cheat and no one was really paying attention to them or, or was really concerned about them. So uh, I, I wonder if you got any thoughts about, you know, there, there does seem to be a lot of not just talk, but but real concern about academic integrity, uh, um, especially in the last two and a half years since education moved predominantly and for periods of time exclusively online. And in fact, you would have seen possibly just this, this last week, Texa announcing 40 something websites that it had blocked. Uh, that's on top of a 2,333 websites that it's identified as being cheating sites and they've, they've instructed every university to block from their, their uh, networks. I don't know what you think about that. It's, I'm, I'm not an expert in this at all. Uh, I mean, it struck me for years that we need to try and design out the possibility of teaching and that in creating assessment schemes, I don't think universities have necessarily been pretty, been very clever. I mean, if you just set some random assignment topic and then add the word discuss uh, at the end of it, you seem to me to be asking for all kinds of <laughs> trouble. So I think you've got to design the assessment so that it's really hard for someone who hasn't done the course um, to to shine in, in any way. And I haven't actually seen very much um, ingenuity there on that side. Um, but obviously there is the policing side, the technology that can come in. Um, you know, in a way, I, I have mixed feelings about this. By the time I left university management, there were so many warnings given to students about academic integrity that that a student that then went on to cheat, I reckon, you know, they were making a conscious choice and they should have weighed up the alternative. So I don't really have a lot of sympathy in aggregate, even though there may be individual cases where I would have, have sympathy with the person. So going back to it, yeah, technology to police, but design out or limit the possibility of teaching by cleverer uh, assessment. But yeah, I guess it sounds like you'd agree, though, that, that that to the extent we can improve the student experience, you're gonna you're gonna diminish yeah. the propensity to 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 cross the line anyway. If someone, if you feel like that someone cares about your presence on campus yeah. I mean, or at the a, university, yeah. And and a related point, uh, you know, if, if a student thinks that they're only there in order to get a piece of paper, and what they're doing doesn't particularly matter, then they'll 
behave in a utilitarian way, you know, if they're actually, uh, if they have a chance to discuss what learning is about and how this is going to really affect their life. And by, if you cheat, you're not learning. Um, so you're going to go away with something that's, that's empty. There are, there are these conversations that you know possibly aren't happening in universities about the importance of of learning and what what this yeah. learning is going to do for you later on. I've got I've got just a couple more sec a couple more questions for you. Um, painting a really interesting picture here of a of a of a sector that that you know maybe over the last twenty years has had a huge amount of momentum behind it, but not a lot of really positive you know energy indicating that the, the next 20 years is going to be as good as the last 70. Um, you know, if, if you could change anything about, ab about the way universities are working or how they're, how they're adapting, like what, what if, or if you were going to go back into the, into the job yourself, what would you change right now that would um, you think give them the greatest chance of success? I'm going to cheat uh, a little here, maybe with more than one answer. I would think hard about the whole operating model of a university, the way that it runs itself, the the amount that goes off into administration and uses of resources, which I don't think are our core business. And so, yeah, you know, I'd be pretty hard headed and less sympathetic about the traditions and so on of the academy. I think those belong to an earlier era. And the other thing that I'd be really interested in looking at is the future of disciplines. And I've been talking about this. The, the idea of a discipline is a relatively recent, relatively recent um, idea. It came about as with the founding of the University of Berlin and the the division of knowledge into categories and so on. And I, I think we're on the verge of technological change, which is going to make knowledge seem quite different with real-time data coming through. That The insights of disciplines, I think many of them will be shown to have been false. Much of what we're teaching students about the world, I suspect, is not going to be shown to be true i mean it's it's well intentioned there's no dishonesty yeah. going on here but we're already we've got um economic theory being really challenged by real-time data uh coming through and as i mentioned in a talk r recently you know when a google-owned laboratory can s discover the structure of 200 million proteins when only 180,000 have been uncovered after 50 years of university research, you know, machine learning and AI is going to just turn on its head what is knowable and how we understand things. So I think the future of the university is now questioning that whole no no notion of a discipline because I think it's providing a distorted view of the way the world really is. That's a really interesting idea, and it almost reminds me a little bit of that classic book by Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Yeah. And you know, we keep adding little bricks to all the yeah. bodies of knowledge, but there's something coming around the corner that's going to yeah. just blow a hole in all yeah. of it. And we're going to re, re have to rethink all I of this, so. particularly when yeah. the machines and, can do that. Yeah. And what was strong about Kuhn was how people fought to save the old paradigm. They'd cling on to it for as long exactly. as possible. And mm -hmm. it's only when uh, the alternative explanations were clearly so much more powerful. Did the paradigm fall over and a new one replace it? 
And I, I know it's almost a cliche now to talk about paradigm shift, but I suspect yeah, well, technology is going to produce it pretty quickly. I, I think you're right. It is a cliche, but I don't think I don't think most people actually know quite what a paradigm is in that context. Yeah. And I think what you were describing actually actually is one. Okay, the last question. Um, you're in a, a a lecture hall, or maybe it's just a seminar room, and you've got forty people in there listening to you and they're all just about to become vice chancellors of each of Australia's universities right now in 2022. What advice would you give them? Uh, If it's a single piece of advice, and this draws on the experience that I had after being a vice chancellor and going effectively into the private sector, it would be look at other kinds of organizations, look outside the university for the way that other kinds of organizations are run, for the way that they use technology, for the way that they bring about change. Um, that uh, My single piece of advice for a vice chancellor is you won't find the answers to change from within the university. And on that note, I think we might just wrap it up. That has been a fascinating conversation, Stephen, and I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jack. It's been great to talk with you again. Visit studiosity.com slash studentsfirst for the next Students First Symposium, an open forum for faculty, staff, and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education studiosity.com slash students first.